Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And I'm your usually friendly local ER doc, Dr. Ward. And we are back from vacation at long last. Did you miss us? Aw, we flew back from Mongolia and our boy, our arm's tired. I'm going to keep telling that joke, <laughs> like for the rest <laughs> of the season, <laughs> like every episode. For those of you, depending on our release schedule and your listening schedule, you may have already heard about some of our adventures in Russia, but that we didn't really get to see a lot of medical things because we didn't really have a lot of medical problems. One of the places we did get to go and learn a lot more about traditional medicine and how people are cared for was in our second destination, the wilds of Mongolia. Ooh. What's the first thing you think of when I say the word Mongolia, Ward? Horses. Then Genghis Khan. Most of us, that's kind of where our knowledge starts and ends. Genghis Khan and horses. Now, Genghis Khan in Mongolia is actually referred to as Chinggis Khan. That was his name. Genghis just means the great. So he was uh, the great Khan. Um, and his name was Temujin. And Chinggis was, I guess, their, their name for a chief or war leader. So for those of you who are not familiar with Genghis Khan... I guess the best way of thinking of him is very similar to Cal Drogo in Game of Thrones. So he was... Okay, I'm, I'm on episode two of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I know it's 2016, but it's really <laughs> it's really heavy and it's really emotionally taxing. So I'm literally on season one, episode two. I take it that... I mean, everybody's a brutal, ruthless, calculating ruler. Is that what... Is that what Chinggis... Uh, he was a very effective horse lord and uh, warlord who united the Mongolian tribes, is by and large a hero to the Mongolian people, and had a couple grandsons who invented the passport system. Ooh. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that later. Uh, I do want to talk a little about the history of medicine in Mongolia. Now, the Mongols are a nomadic people, and that's true even today. We we landed in, after the train, we made it to Ulaanbaatar, or U, I guess Ulaanbaatar, uh, it sounds like something you use to make Ulan cake. Right, delicious. Uh, but that's really the only city in almost all of Mongolia, and we learned that of the three million people who live in Mongolia... One million, or a full third of the population, live in Ulaanbaatar, which is the only major city. Now, there's a couple minor ones, but there's no roads going to them. It's all off-roading. 
So, there's only one major city, which a full third of the population lives in, and of the one million people who live in Ulaanbaatar, about 70% of them are 30 years old or younger. Well, that's a young country. Right? So, all the old people are hanging out in the lawn, and all the young people are like, no, let's maybe go inside a building. Well, speaking of on the lawn, I so we took a we took a little trail up to a mountain top overlooking Ulaanbaatar. Um, and even even nowadays, next to concrete buildings, there are these little yurts in the middle of the city on just tracts of land. Construction is constantly ongoing, so a lot of Russians will take jobs in construction to go over to Mongolia, build for a while, and then go back. But you will see uh, people just have their, their gurs or their yurts, which are, they look like little round hobbit hole type tents, uh, which we can go into a little bit more later. I mean, can you imagine and, having, in the middle of Chicago, just having tracts of land with teepees on them? That's, that's what it looked like, and it was, that, that contrast was stark. And going to your daily job, these were not teepees that were set up to be like, well, it's just for a couple months or because I'm homeless. It's like, no, this is my address, this is my house, and next door to me just happens to be a concrete high-rise. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a really interesting contrast. But if we go into the, maybe a little bit of the, the history now, the Mongols have been a nomadic people for many, many years. And because of that, you're going to have a unique range of illnesses and injuries you can get when most of your life is lived on horseback. Ooh. The Mongols were able to contribute a lot of oh, that advanced knowledge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they're also, they're tiny horses, so the stirrups actually are very high up because otherwise some of your legs would be dragging along the ground. <laughs> and if you fall, which we did talk to, we found our guide, uh, along with most young Mongolian men at some point, participated in horse racing as children, and every single one of them has fallen off a horse at some point in their life. You know, it's, it's, horses are the motorcycles of Mongolia. It's, well, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. You have to fall out a few times. Fell off a few times. They had a lot to document about topics such as bone setting or early orthopedics, treatment of war wounds. They were actually, I learned interestingly, the Mongols were the very first people to establish a link between diet and health. The earliest nutritional writings come from Mongolia. That I'm impressed. Traditional doctors, and this, you know, goes back to the time of Genghis Khan, which was around the 1300s. Um, 13, 1200s, 1300s was around the time when Genghis Khan lived. And back then, traditional Mongolian doctors were really known as shaman or holy men, and they relied mostly on magic and spiritual powers to cure illness. They were used mostly as healers, but their main strength was in prophecy readings and in establishing this link, saying, oh, the spirits have cursed you, you need to eat more red meat, but you need to balance it with this many vegetables. Because the Mongolian diet, by and large, is... Lamb. There's not a lot of greens because they're not farmers. There's no cabbage. There's no carrots. It's whatever the lamb and cows that they are herding and the horses that they are herding are grazing on. And they will pick the plants that their animals eat and eat those along with the animals. I, well, two things. But lamb and sign reading, I think, are ingrained in Mongolian culture. We went to a Mongolian restaurant. And in the middle of the dining table was a set of just little bones, little ankle bones. We were like, what, what, are, what are these for? It turns out they were for reading your fortune. How did it, how did it work? You, like, you would toss out the bones almost like dice. And depends on how they landed, you could get your f- fortune interpreted by a chart. Now, they would land on one of four sides, which were referred to locally by either the sheep side, horse side, camel side, goat side. Goat side, yeah. And and the fortunes were read almost in a way like a magic eight ball. You'd ask your question, you'd throw the bones, and based on how they landed, you'd get things like uh, all obstacles have been removed or your request does not make sense, please check back again later. We got a chance to both research ancient Mongolian medicine and talk to a current Mongolian healer. I learned a little bit about bone setting. Before I get to that, I'm going to tell you some of these older treatments that were used. Gout is apparently a very common 
medical problem in Mongolia. We know that Asians, by and large, do have difficulty digesting alcohol, and also that people who have diets that are very heavy in meat are more likely to be afflicted by gout because you're going to have a slightly more acidic type of blood. Well, that, and if you're already prone to having, if you already have gout, um, the gout diet is is a diet low in red meat, low in fish, and no alcohol. And it sounds like the exact opposite of what that part of the world eats. One of the earliest ones, and I cannot verify how effective this was, but you would you would immerse the affected part of your body, which, as we know, is normally the foot or the hands, where you would see these these gout-type things, into the belly of a freshly killed cow. And you would just dip it in the blood of a cow to treat the gout and make the swelling go down. An early method of blood transfusion is placing a person in the stomach of an animal. If you're wondering what that looks like, you've all seen the original Star Wars when Luke has to carve open his tauntaun and hide inside for warmth. That is a method of blood transfusion in ancient Mongolia. Maybe Luke had gout. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he had excessive gout or needed a blood transfusion. So on the battlefield, when a soldier became unconscious due to massive blood loss, he would be stripped and placed in the stomach of a freshly killed animal until he became conscious again. I'm not entirely sure how this transfusion was supposed to work. If I were a Mythbuster, I would label this one as heavily on the myth side. Although this was a little bit, shall we say, scientifically untested. Right. Most of their treatments dealt with herbs or physiotherapy, actually manipulating the thing. So herbs, legend had any plant could be used as medicine. And Emchi, or Otochi, which is the name for their healers who dealt in plants, is quoted as saying, you know, all the flowers on which butterflies sit are ready medicine for diseases. A flower rejected by the butterflies is poisonous, but it can become medicine when properly composed. And because they do have to water their horses and so many things, they became very familiar with the various plants surrounding lakes for medicine. And they also used a lot of water itself as medicine, which is known as balneotherapy. And water would be collected from various sources, including the sea and lakes, and stored for many years until ready for use. And depending on what your affliction was, you would use that specific kind of water. So seawater may be used to treat one condition, whereas river water from the mountains versus the desert may be used to treat others. Interesting. Unfortunately, my inability to read Mongolian did limit a lot of my research into this as to what specific conditions and waters would be used for each other. Well, it looks like he said, found out that acidity and stomach upsets was one of the ailments that uh, water treatments was being used for. Yeah, which Which in some ways makes sense. You know, if you do have indigestion, we always tell people to hydrate. Right. Um, It's very rare that water won't help something. Another old remedy, which I thought was very interesting, was the historical custom of eating a piece of paper with words printed on it. And there would be magical incantations in Tibetan, uh, written by the shamans or the priests, which would say, you know, this spell is a cure for fever, this spell is that. And they would give them to the Mongolians there, and they would fold it up, put the paper on their tongue, chew it, and swallow the spell, hoping that it would help. But some of these things worked because the paper on which the spells were printed were made from these same local plants that had been gathered. I so want that treatment to work, because it sounds like it should. Right? It's like, oh, I've got diarrhea. Let me eat this piece of paper that says anti-diarrhea, but it also happens to be made of a plant that would bind up your stomach. And also, the power of placebo is... is Proven placebo effect has an actual effect. That's why we call it the placebo effect. It does make people feel better a lot of the time. And you and I actually went through a a Mongolian temple, and one of the traditions for worshippers is to turn the little wishing drums, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I must say, after having gone through just the temple, pushing the little drums, and with this rhythmic chanting and incantation going on in the background with the incense in the air, it felt really, really calming. I walked out of that temple 
in a much better mood and in a much better place than I had uh, walked in. Just because it's a placebo doesn't mean that it doesn't work, but I I would love to get my hands on some of these old incantations made from plant material and find out what was being used to treat. Because the idea of a magic spell on a medicinal paper is one, I think, really... Imagine if, you know, you could take one of those Lister mints that dissolve on your tongue Ooh, yeah. for bad breath and take that for a sore tooth or an upset stomach. It sounds... You know, like a lot of voodoo to us, it does have some potential areas of study that are still used today. Now, I, I don't think we noticed anybody eating magical medical paper, but uh, the fact that it existed in the olden days was very interesting. Now, the last area of old Mongolian medicine I want to introduce before we get to some of the more current things is a branch called bone setting. Now, this is the earliest form anywhere in the world of documented orthopedics, which is medicine that specializes in bones. And, you know, you imagine if you're riding your horse around all day and you fall off, well, if the horse breaks a leg, you shoot it, eat it, and move on. But if the rider breaks a leg, what would they do? Shoot it, you eat prob- it. Right? <laughs> you probably don't want to shoot and eat right. your soldiers because that's going to decrease your army. So they're these traditional shamans slowly started evolving into healers who would deal primarily with setting bones without the use of any of the surgical theaters. They would basically massage the bones back into place, not in a chakra yoga kind of way, but with very firm pressure. And at the same time, moving what they call energy currents around and doing pressure points, almost like a, a physiological massage. So it's, it's an earlier form of physiotherapy and orthopedics. Now, the actual name for these bone setters is, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing this wrong, but you're going to love it, bariachis, which makes me think of a bunch of Mongolians in Mexican hats going, da 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 But these bone setters are traditional healers. They work by and large, without medicine, without anesthesia, without instruments, and they rely on, as we said, physiotherapy to manipulate bones back to their proper position, which supposedly was done without any pain to the patient. I don't know if I believe that, but bariachis were lay people at the time without medical training. They were born into the job, and they had the rumored ability to fix any problem, no matter how severe or difficult. So they would use a lot of the things we already talked about last season in traditional Chinese medicine, such as cupping or herbal compresses and even some acupuncture. And in some cases, they used early forms of surgery with uh, ice as a local anesthetic. Well, can I just say, as a modern bone setter, I set a lot of bones in the ER. And it is a fine art because, just like the Mongolian healers, I do not have the luxury of having a fluoroscope in my emergency department. A fluoroscope is a bedside x-ray where you can see where the bones are and you can see if your bone setting or, you know, what we call reduction is appropriate and sufficient. Just like you said, the massaging, the knowing where physiological alignment of bones are, that knowledge is super important because what a lot of times can happen after a fracture happens in a long bone is the muscles around these long bones go into contraction and go into spasm and they pull that bone out of anatomical alignment. And imagine a broken bone with all these shards of sharp, sharp bone fragments sticking in non-anatomical positions, meaning sticking into muscle tissue, sticking into sensitive nerve tissue, sticking into already injured tissue. That is super painful. And I've watched my orthopedic colleagues artfully pull these bones back into alignment. And there sometimes, there sometimes is a wrong way and there sometimes is a right way to do this. Experience and know-how makes a huge difference. I can tell you, as a patient, I certainly want an experienced orthopedist, experienced ER doc. Or in that case, if I were back in the days being in Genghis Khan's golden horde, if I were a golden hoarder, I would certainly want a very experienced bariachi to pull my bones back into place. These bariachis actually had a very important role yeah. in both the, the Golden Horde as well as 
up to today as traditional Mongolian healers. Now, Ward, you, you've seen a lot more broken bones, I'd say, in the recent years than I have. What are the different kinds of fractures? And, you know, certainly we want to get an orthopedist on uh, later this year to go into that more. But what's a simple fracture, a, a complex fracture, a displaced? Like, what are some of the, the different things that these bone setters might have had to deal with? The bariachis most likely mostly dealt with long bone fractures. Those are the arms, legs, humerus, femurs. Those are the bones and active parts of our bodies that get fractured when we sustain traumas, like falling off a horse, a bicycle. Non-long bone fractures, like skull fractures, that's a whole completely different ball of wax. And you, you, know, you generally don't tend to reset, reset these bones without surgeries. A simple fracture can take place in the middle of the bone, or it can take place close to the end of the bone near a joint. Now, it's more problematic when that fracture extends into the joint because you have an actively moving joint, and now you have a shard of broken bone going through it. Now, again, a joint is just by definition any place where two bones meet. Two bones meet, and they usually move, and there are strong ligaments supporting that meeting point, so there's a, it's almost like a mechanical joint where there's a socket uh, in a lot of cases. So what can happen, like I said earlier, is... The, there are strong muscles and ligaments holding that bone in place. So sometimes when that bone is just simply cracked, it'll stay in place and it'll just be a little crack through it. Now, those are painful. Usually, they're not as serious as if the bone had completely broken through and is now angulated or completely off. So imagine a long piece of bone where there's a break in the middle, but the break, broken points are not meeting anymore. So we call that a, dis, a displaced fracture. So those are those are tough to deal with because as a bariachi or as a ER doc or as a orthopedist, you want to pull that bone back into place so the two broken ends are 100% meeting each other again. One, that's the most stable and anatomical alignment of that bone, and it will produce the least amount of pain when it's splinted. Secondly, that's the only way it's going to heal because that's where the bone healing takes place, and bone healing is a long and protracted progress. Now, usually you form a soft callus first within the first couple of weeks. Callus forms into soft bone within the next month or so, and then soft bone gets reformed into hard bone in the next several months, four to six months. So overall, it takes four to six months, maybe even longer for these long bones to heal. And alignment is key. So if the bone setter pulls, the bariachi pulls the bone into a correct alignment, chances are that it's going to heal a lot better than if if left be, if the bone ends never met, it might never heal. I was very fortunate along our travels to actually come across one of these bone setters and traditional healers, and I got a chance to talk with her. Now, uh, both Dr. Susanna and I were very fortunate to interview not only a bone setter, but a, a general surgeon as well, someone with training in, in both modern and historical medicine in Mongolia. So let's hear from, from some of the experts. Now, one interesting fact before I start jumping into interview clips is, did you know, Ward, one of the things we learned is in Mongolia, over 50% of the doctors and actually almost up to 60 or 70% are women, including huh. the mother and wife of our tour guide, as well as the person who we booked the tour with. Her sister was a doctor. Uh, apparently, it is more common for women to go into medicine in all fields, higher and lower, than it is for men. They just do other things. Huh. That is interesting. Yeah, so it, you know, a lot of lot of girl power doctors over there. Well, what about the traditional bone healers, the bariachis? Are they also more likely to be female than males? Again, uh, not as many documents available on the Internet, so it's hard to say traditionally, but my suspicion is if the men were all out being warriors and fighters and shamans, mm -hmm. then, yeah, the bariachis and herbal healers were probably very likely women, you know, they would come back to camp, the men would come back to camp after waging war or whatever, and, you know, the women had to learn how to take care of them, and slowly they just got so proficient at it. Now, again, this is all speculation, because I don't have the 
historical documents oh, to back up. Let's do something totally unscientific. What about the one you interviewed? Was that was that Bariachi a female or male? That was a woman. Oh, there you go. Um, sample so size one, one hundred percent. Sample size one. <laughs> uh, so let's learn first a little bit about what she feels bone setting is and how long it takes to learn to do. What is traditional bone setting? It's treating the human by rubbing the sore parts of the body. And if you're some part of your body is got stiffness and broken or some, some bones are broken, she rub it and also um, how to say, he restores the points, you know, the nervous points in the body. He restored restore the points and the broken points of the body. So is there a special kind of energy that she's moving around? Or when you say she's restoring broken points, mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you tell what's broken? <laughs> There's another kind of treatment that uses energy from, from distance. But the way of she doing this is just rubbing the soul parts of body. So, is, is there a special way of rubbing them? How is traditional bone setting different from, say, massage? Modern way of massage is just to make the person relax and feel feeling relaxing. But the traditional one is uh, just concentrate on the points. Every point has has an organ to connect with. If you if you have kidney disease, there is a special point for good for uh, kidney on the on the back. And traditional one is concentrate on on those points. How long does it take to learn how to do this? You can get that kind of education for six years, but she said uh, after your graduation, two years enough to be really good on that. Uh, two years of practice is enough, and six years of uh, you know uh, in university. Oh, no, so six yeah. years first, mm -hmm. yeah. and, then and then two, two years, years of practice, and that's all. Okay. And do you practice under uh, like a mentor or a guide? And there's a mentor, is a really exper experienced uh, doctor, and also the university decide which students go to where to practice. Okay. They dispute the students in very different uh, uh, hospitals. That is a lot of training. It is. So Mongolian doctors go to school pretty much almost as long as we do here in the States. Huh. Um, and can you imagine six years of, of learning, you know, not only the basic medical knowledge, but also how to massage in such a way that you're affecting these pressure points. So that, that seems a little bit more expensive than, say, maybe just our massage right. therapists. In the U.S., too. Maybe instead of Sally May coming after them, the student loan will be <laughs> spearheaded by the ghost of the Golden Horde. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, of course, incredibly excited to to meet a real life bone setter, having done all this research before heading out. I wanted to ask, you know, how long is this tradition? Hoping I would get some sage wisdom about, like, oh well, my great grandparents. Uh, back through their great grandparents served at Genghis Khan's right hand side, and uh, let's let's find out. Uh, how old is the tradition? 
So other people with different types of body problems? Yes, they what, can come. What type of problems would they have where they say, oh, I want to go see the bone center? Uh, cannot move their backs. And also, all people, they have a pain on their knees. And they come usually. And also, brain problems. If you, have, if you get a headache, they, they can come to have a massage on your head. And also, if you have digestion, it's not so good, you can come to see the bone setter. Because there are special points on the back for taking care of the inside organs, connected to the inside organs. So, yeah, it's 1990. That's not a lot of time well, it makes for a centuries-old tradition. Um, well, it makes sense. If they were traditionally nomadic people, History is probably mostly passed down orally and just through practice. There, there is now a school in Ulaanbaatar as well as a small school in Karkarin, and you do your two years of practice mostly nomadically. You are moving from town to town or settlement to settlement with your mentor learning how to do this. Now, this particular bone setter that I, I interviewed was working in a government hospital in a more established small village so but she had been in private practice for a number of years before and most of the people seeing traditional healers have very common problems of the elderly back pain how many times have you seen that in the er joint pain digestion so ones that are common all around the world but so that seems like the the manip uh, the manipulations uh the bariachi do in this setting are more akin to the the manipulations that doctors of osteopathy do Right. They're not yeah. exactly fracture care. It's chronic, chronic musculoskeletal care. So the bone setters have moved from less to setting bones and more to dealing with joints and traditional. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Methods of healing that don't focus on just throwing pills at a problem. I like that. Later on this season, we're going to touch base again with our chiropractor who also taught us about traditional Chinese medicine and see, you know, how he integrates the two. Um, but I had to wonder, especially as so much of this sounded very similar to traditional Chinese medicine, how do you diagnose and do these pressure points correspond? Are these like acupuncture points where you press somebody's toe if they have heartburn or you touch the top of their head if they're having liver problems? <laughs> And some of the things we saw around the room, although they looked very similar to traditional Chinese medicine, we found out they were used a little bit differently. 
let's learn a bit about that and hear from our bariachi. Are the points near the organs that you use? So if I have a head problem, is it a head point or is it an arm point? Usually it's near to the... For example, for kidney, it's right, right here. And he's pointing yeah. to his back near the kidneys. Yeah. yeah. And how do you diagnose? How do you tell what's wrong? There are two different types of blood. One is hot blood, hot arteries, and another is cold arteries. And hot six arteries and cold six arteries. And hot arteries goes up, and cold goes under. When somebody comes to you for treatment for a problem, how many treatments does it take before they're fixed? Is it all done in one session or do they have to come back several times in a row? The patient has to come uh, many times, more, uh, five to ten times. And that's for most problems, they take about five to ten times? At one time, um, it's, uh, the patient had to be treated up to four, 14 days. If, if it's necessary more treatment, uh, they'll uh, take a break in a few days and study over again. Do all your patients come here, or do you ever go to their to where they live? They come here. They come here. So it's not the same as acupuncture points. It really is. Where does it hurt? That's where I'm applying pressure. And I kind of like the expectation that. Look, it's not like one shot and that's it, all your problems are gone. It's a treatment plan. And you do have yeah. to get, you know, continuous treatments. Yeah, now again, getting continuous treatments in a nomadic society might have been a little bit more difficult. So I, I don't know how this was done before 1990, but again, we did visit a government hospital. Right. So people would come to the hospital and presumably they would just have to avoid migrating to wherever the next place is until they finish the treatment. Or presumably find the next local bariachi. Exactly. Right. So you might be wondering with these treatments, you know, how much does this cost or what are some of the tools? We did see in the office there were two boxes, uh, one full of gravel and one full of sand. And we're like, oh, because the, the hospital itself was just a linoleum floor. <laughs> but everywhere surrounding in Mongolia was as we learned, the same as the African massage roads. Everywhere was off-roading. It was unpaved dirt filled with rocks. So, of course, the first thought Dr. Susanna and I had is, oh, maybe when people are going through physical therapy after having broken a bone or getting treatment, they have to practice by walking on sand and gravel because that's what, obviously, they're going to be walking on during the day. We asked, you know, what's what is the purpose of this box of sand and gravel? And we also asked, you know, in addition to what other treatments are you using, how much does this cost? You know, we, of course, are, are known in the U.S. for having astronomical health care costs. What is a visit to a, a traditional healer look like? You know, how... How much is it going to cost to visit? Is this an affordable thing, or do people just afford I don't know. It? Sometimes you walk into a U.S. hospital and you think, hey, that's just a bag of saline. That bag of saline gets charged, like, <laughs> $1,000. So maybe those are some very special sandboxes and gravel. Yes. So, okay, so what? So you think the sand gravel treatment, do you think it's physical therapy? Do you think it's something else? Uh, I'm going to guess that it's going to be used for, uh, for physical therapy. Right? Because, you know, why would you have somebody walking right. on linoleum floor right. if the only time they're going to see in their life is linoleum floor? Right. So let's learn about the cost as well as what these boxes are. Now, we noticed off in the corner two, two boxes. What are they used for? Mm. 
you know, the blood pressure, and especially the old, old people, they have uh, blood pressure problems. And they, the white one is salt, mm -hmm. from, the, uh, from the natural salt. And the other one is uh, stones from the river stones. And the patients have to step on the salt first. And then they have to step on the rocks. It's just you know to restore the nerves under under the foot, and the feet. Okay, so and many many uh, nervous points under under the feet. And that helps with the blood pressure. Blood pressure and also many other disease and ner nervous disease. They're restoring the nerves. What other kinds of treatments do you use besides massage? Do you use any plants or? What other things do you do to treat? I think it's very very simple. I don't there's some one kind of treatment. The other one is that we saw some uh, glass thing. What was that? Cupping. Ah, okay, cupping. He, she used that. You know, so, and also she she also used the kind of pole. Acupuncture. Yeah, and sting on the on the skin uh, to restore the nerves junction of the nerve. Okay. Um, how do people pay you for your treatment? Or how much do treatments cost? It usually depends on the, what kind of disease is this. But this is a government hospital. It's, uh, mostly people don't pay anything here. It's uh, free for all the, uh, all the people who live here in this village. But the uh, patient come from another place, not registered administration on, in this village. Uh, they have to pay, usually they pay around 100,000 to 200,000, up to 500,000 pay for her. Okay. Um, which, with our exchange rate, 100,000 comes out to $50. about $50. $200, and 500,000 is 250. Wow, I would have gotten that multiple choice answer wrong, right? I, would have, I swear I would have thought it was some, it had something to do with physical therapy. Yeah, so blood pressure with gravel and sand. So, you know, for those of you who are uh, maybe a little bit fatigued with all the pills you're taking, consider getting your own Mongolian doctor and a box of gravel and sand to help regulate your blood pressure. Running a little high, stand in sand. Running a little low, go stand on rocks. It might not work at all. However, it seems <laughs> like the side effects are minimal. Yeah. 30 feet. 30 feet. So, um, but even with that, $50 is pretty affordable, even on a, on a standard Mongolian salary. Sure. You know, it's, it's high, and you're not running into the doctor for everything, but $50 is something a family can afford without going completely bankrupt or destitute. Right. We were in the midst of interviewing this traditional healer, one of the general surgeons for the hospital walked in who had gone through some similar training. Now, we also asked him, like, okay, well, we've seen what kind of care people are getting from the traditional side. And he was gracious enough to give us a few moments of his time in between surgeries to answer, what do things look like for somebody trained a little bit more in Western medicine? What sort of injuries are the surgeons seeing? Now, you know, Dr. Susanna is our traveling surgeon. So she had a whole bunch of questions for for a fellow peer in the field. Oh, now Nasamba. 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 
and he take care of the oppression and the broken part of the bone. In general oppression. General operation. Now, is there a traditional method for that, or are you when you fix broken bones, how do you do it?
Dr. Chetna. Questions for my end. So my job at home, I'm a general surgeon. So I do the operation side as well. Um, I'm curious to know in a place like this, what kind of facilities you have. You said uh, the C-sections, the appendix. Um, if it's something more serious, do they have to go to another facility? Um, and how do you put them to sleep here? All the facilities are in a different room and the first uh, uh, operation is she, he is just assistant so he's unable to show you for the first operation but second one he, he is a dominant the second operation if you want to see you can come into the room and you can see all the facilities so what happens if somebody has cancer in the colon or if their stomach explodes from a ruptured ulcer or something like that? Is it your job or do they have to get sent on somewhere else? If the patient is really seriously wounded or seriously uh, the disease is, is really uh, harmful for his life, they, uh, they send the patient into the provincial center which is um, 130 kilometers far from here. How do they get there? Uh, with this car outside. Okay, so they go over all the massage yeah. roads, the bumpy uh, roads. Yes, but if it's really, you know, serious, they bring one doctor from the promotion center and they bring one really highly experienced doctor from the promotion center and that doctor will lead the operation here. Okay. What type of anesthesia do they have? Anesthesia? What's this? Yeah, anesthesia is um, so they can go to sleep. They have two doctors okay. who takes care of that kind of thing. With, with gas? And when you take out the appendix, is it with a cut or is it with the laparoscope? Go, So no, no laparoscopes in this hospital. All the general treatment. Spinal anesthesia? For the baby? Okay. But, and for the Abbey also spinal? Spinal. Spinal. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's a brief intro to surgery in Mongolia. Well, you know, it sounds like that's not so different from small town docs in, well, I, I guess anywhere. You know, the local surgeon in a small town probably will get consulted for car accidents, falls, and just about everything in between. Yeah, and that's actually was Dr. Susanna's experience. So the two of them, despite having an impressive language barrier, have a lot to talk about, and they do a lot of similar work. I thought it was very interesting, though, that the population of broken bones that our, our surgeon saw is so specific and delineated. Only old people have falls. Only middle-aged people get into car accidents, and only children have horse horse injuries, although I did like how he wanted to be very protective of national pride, and he said, but when the children are falling, you know, it's usually the horse's fault, not not the riders. They'll, of course. You know, sometimes the horse, steps, the horse steps into a hole, and the rider will take a tumble, because Mongolian people are wonderful guys. Of course. I, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, did you notice how did the, uh, how did the Western-trained surgeon, what was his... Um, 
attitude towards local traditional medicine and the bariachi, the local healers. He thought it was great, and the two of them were colleagues and worked closely with one another because he could only do so much in terms of surgery, just like she could only do so much with traditional healing. So the two would refer to and consult each other on cases. Well, that I'm really glad to hear because even in... Even in the States, when we're all on the, you know, we're all trained through the same system, all quote-unquote Western medicine, there are sometimes turf wars between, you know, surgery, medicine, you know, gastroenterology, whatever specialty, subspecialty you have, due to differences of opinions and differences in really points of view. I'm glad to hear that they can actually reconcile. Now, one of the interesting things, now this is not strictly traditional Mongolian medicine, but Dr. Susanna would, you know, kill me if I didn't reference it, is this gentleman, as a result of this conversation, invited us to scrub in and witness a surgery, an appendectomy, where they take out your appendix. And we learned that, at least in this hospital and in most of the rural hospitals, the anesthesiologist only does spinal. There's no gas to knock you out. All surgery is done under local anesthesia, meaning you're awake the entire time. They just numb the particular area they're operating on. And they also don't do scopes, meaning tubes and very small cuts for things like appendix or C-sections. Everything is an exploratory or open surgery. You're going to have a big cut across your belly. They're going to open you up, root around until they find what they need to and take it out. And all of this is done under local anesthetic. Did you, I mean, it, it's, local anesthetic is effective. It is effective. It's very effective. So, it was just very interesting that, you know, people here are, nobody's like, well, no, you have to knock me out. They're just like, well, I'm going in and you're just going to numb and I'm going to be awake the entire time. Now, the last thing we'll do before we close out this episode is I was feeling, I was unfortunately unable to attend the surgery myself because I was a little bit ill that day, and I figured, you know, I'm already at a Mongolian traditional healer. Why don't I see how good her diagnosis is? I had self-diagnosed and figured out what treatment I was going to do, but I wanted to get a second opinion. So Dr. Susanna and I both underwent diagnosis by our healer, and let's find out how that went. So right now, Josh is seated on a stool, and our bone setter is standing behind him, palpating his scalp, looked like just above the ear along the temporal arteries, and uh, just along the edges of the forehead at about the level of his brow. He's going to massage his head starting along the central portion of the forehead between the eyebrows and up towards the scalp line and then palpating firmly along the eyebrows all the way to his temples and then a scalp rub starting at the scalp line above the forehead and moving back towards the occiput now I'm jealous because it looks fabulous it is fabulous and it is doing wonders for my headache. So it's a very light to moderate pressure. It almost feels as though I'm being shampooed. She's focusing moving from back or from sides to the back. From the top of his scalp, at the top of the forehead, down all the way down to his neck. And then she goes around from above the ears all the way to the back of his head, like a ring. And then firm pressure starting from the scalp down to his neck. And now back to palpating the temporal arteries. Now she's holding pressure on his forehead and applying pressure point to the side of his right scalp. She is occasionally, as she applies pressure, stretching and extending my neck and giving it a little shake, like my head is full of beans. Which it is. Touché. Now she's massaging his earlobes. There are many points on the ears. 
Oh, and there are fingers in my ears. Now she's giving him a vigorous neck massage, holding his head in place by placing her palm against his forehead and then using the other hand to massage the neck muscles. And now she's giving him a massage down his shoulders. It's very firm pressure, almost similar to that you receive at the Thai massage. Now your brain is back in the position, back in proper position. And in two hours, don't do any sudden movement or shaking your body. You don't need to do it within two hours. So no dance parties tonight. Yeah. And usually you have to, usually a patient that have that kind of uh, disease like you, uh -huh. they have to have at least three massages like this. Okay. And if you, you know, shake your hand or something, some part of body suddenly, and you'll get the pain again, maybe, she said. Okay. And she diagnosed you by uh, putting her finger on your blood, on your artery, on each side of your brain. And the pulse, this side was normal, but this side was really low. So the pulse on the right side of my temple was low compared yeah, really to the low. left. So that's, that's why she said that part of your brain has a problem. And after the massage, she, she has diagnosed again and both sides were normal. Okay, so you heard it here first. My brain was dislodged, which is not a surprise to most of the listeners of our show. So, same diagnosis, but very different methods. Hey, I wonder if that was her nice way of saying, <laughs> get your head screwed back on. Brain dislodged? <laughs> I mean, that sounds, like, that sounds like something your mother would diagnose you or me. I like that she goes into, I like that that's what you zero in on. She tells me I have kidney problems, I have digestion <laughs> problems, I'm dehydrated, and you zoom right in on you. your brain's dislodged, you have beans in your head. Uh, you know, sometimes patients hate it when doctors tell them uh, it's all in your head, and that's, that's a, such a skilled way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> However, I did think it was fascinating that she, she diagnosed my brain being dislodged um, and my, you know, head injury from bumping against the car by feeling the temporal arteries. And apparently her, her pulse diagnosis is so sensitive that she could tell, you know, whether or not my brain is dislodged, she could tell that the pulses on opposite sides of my head were just different enough that there was a problem going on there. Because I did not give her a history. The language barrier prevented that. Uh, she, the, all of this was done just through physical diagnosis. I will say this, though. Um, the pulse tells you a lot. And in, as an emergency physician, that's one of the first things I go to is sick or not sick. That's the, two, that's the two branch points. That's the fork in the road I must cross early on when I see a patient. And a pulse tells you a lot. And the pulse can tell me, can potentially tell me uh, this person is gravely ill versus, you know what, we got some time to figure out what, what next to do. And it sounds like she just has the art down uh, so much further, so much farther along that she could even tell, you know, other information. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, for practice. And, you know, we found out that she, for somebody who's been in practice for over a decade, plus the second decade of what sounds like their medical training, you know, it pays off. Um, did you feel so better after? I did. I did. I did take her advice. I didn't have a dance party. I didn't shake my head around. And by the next morning, I was feeling wonderful and ready to continue with more adventures in Mongolia. Uh, so that is the show this week. Next time, Dr. Santosh and our newest co-host, Dr. Praz, will be with us. Because you guys, I know I didn't mention it earlier, but it's October it's my favorite month. You know a Halloween episode is coming. Ooh. So, 
that's it. I, for... I, shut, I shut her at the puns that are coming. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm really scared. But that's our show for this week. You can always reach us. We love to hear your questions and comments on Facebook. You can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Dr. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. We are downloaded at iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.